You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the web website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au please stick around for this week's elephant rider boot camp and we have a cracking dumbo of the week coming up before we get started everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice if you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. It's all anybody is talking about, the coronavirus and how it's changing the very fabric of our lives. Now we're all feeling it in one way or another and some have experienced an immediate financial impact and we're all facing a protracted period of uncertainty. Talk has gone from whether we'll face a technical recession to a full-blown recession, and in recent days, a depression has even been mooted. And what does this mean for the property market? Will we have 20% price falls? And who is really game enough to make predictions at the moment anyway? In this episode, we pick the brains of arguably the most quoted economist in the Australian media, Dr. Shane Oliver. Shane is the Head of Investment Strategy and Economics and Chief Economist, AMP Capital, and we are honoured to have him on the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us, Shane. My pleasure, Veronica. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Shane. Um, I mean, we're just getting comfortable with the word recession, I think. Um, you know, we've kind of given up and up, uh, you know, 27 years or whatever it is, maybe it's 30 years now. But um, depression, it's a bit of a scary word. What's the major difference you see between a recession and that depression word? There's a lot of debate about that. Uh, but if you sort of Google the word, you and compare the two, a depression is generally a deeper, longer version of a recession. If you go back to the post-World War II period, uh, recessions were all, all economic downturns and they didn't really use the word depression until we got to the Great Depression, which was quite clearly worse than any previous recession. So they, they, uh, they sort of used, uh, they, they came up with that term, depression. Mm. Um, and recession became the more common term for milder setbacks in the economy. Uh, this, I, I guess use of the term does elicit a lot of fear because the Great Depression is, mm. is well known. Unemployment in Australia went to 20%. In the US, it went to 25%. Economic activity in the US, I think, contracted something like 25% um, or more. Could, could have been up as high as 30%. Uh, in Australia, it also uh, contracted quite substantially. And to be honest with you, I think there's going to be elements of both in what we experience in the next little while. Obviously, we're all stuck at home. That means we can't spend. Lots of businesses have had to shut their doors. Mm. So big chunks of the economy will be affected. So you'll see quite a sharp drop-off in economic activity, sharper than we've seen in the whole of the post-war period, more akin to what you see in what we saw in the Great Depression. Yeah. But by the same token, there are many differences. The, the Great Depression, Depression was preceded by the Roaring Twenties. Yeah. So there was a preceding boom. We haven't really had a preceding boom in Australia. In fact, the debate in recent years has been about how weak growth has been overall you know we've had pockets of strengths the housing market sort of was up and down um a bit of a building boom in sydney and melbourne mm. but by and large you know it's been a pretty soft period so we haven't had a, a, a roaring 20s equivalent so to speak so we haven't had a boom to go bust yeah nor have we had the excesses that went with that boom prior in the 1920s we haven't had the massive debt growth to the same degree, we haven't had uh, an inflation problem. We haven't had central banks jamming on the brakes. We haven't have, had overbuilding in the economy. So mm. the sort of excesses that normally precede recessions and depressions haven't been evident. So the other thing which is bigly, hugely different is that this is a downturn which has been turned on by government in response to the coronavirus situation. Mm. They've taken a look at Italy and said, well, Italy's got a death rate now of over 11%. Problem has been that if too many people get the coronavirus at once, roughly 20% need to go to hospital. 
of which a quarter of those need uh, intensive care. If everyone gets it at once, then a lot of people aren't going to be able to make it into hospital, let alone get yeah. intensive care. Uh, therefore, we can't let what happened in Italy happen here. We've got to distance ourselves and hence the shutdown in the economy, hence the hit to the economy. But that can be turned off at some point as well uh, once we get the virus under control. The other big difference compared to the Great Depression is that we've seen massive policy stimulus in the economy uh, on the part of government and the Reserve Bank, whereas going into the Great Depression, we didn't see any of that. In fact, they made it worse. So I think there's huge differences between now and the Great Depression, even though the economic data when it comes out over the next few months may look pretty depression-like. Yeah, I mean, obviously Australia hasn't had that big roaring 20s though, but I mean, what about the, I guess, the biggest superpower out there, you know, I guess China and the US? Um, Do you think they've got a lot more to be concerned around a depression, you know, coming up? Uh, Well, first, if you look at China, it did have very strong growth, but most of that very strong growth was last decade. It spent much of this decade slowing down. Mm. It's a more manageable pace of growth. And I know a lot of people say you should worry about this in relation to China or worry about that or something. They always find some worry with China. Mm. But at the end of the day, it does borrow from itself. It has a very high national savings rate. It hasn't gone on the debt binge that other countries have periods gone on. And the recent experience with the uh, with China uh, is that they had quite a severe shutdown, akin to the one Italy's now going through, starting mm-hmm. January 23rd, and recently they've got the coronavirus under control. Not completely. There's still risks around it, particularly from imported cases. <laughs> uh, but they were able to sort of gradually start opening their economy up a little bit from the end of February as we went through March. And so the worst, fingers crossed, seems to be behind us for the Chinese economy. And then when we look at the US, uh, I mean, a lot of people say, well, their share market's gone to record highs. But that was after going nowhere over that whole of the 2000 to 2013 period, the S&P 500 just spun its wheels through the tech Mm. wreck and the GFC. Uh, And... Yeah, the US has a big, big decline in unemployment, but household debt, corporate debt hasn't gone through the roof dramatically. And US economic growth beyond the fall in the unemployment rate hasn't been been excessive. You know, it's sort of a long way from what I would call boom time conditions in the US. Mm. Maybe there's been a bit of exuberance in uh, the so-called fang stocks. That's like yeah. Facebook, Amazon, <laughs> Apple, Netsco, let's get this confused, oh, Netflix, uh, Google's in there, although it's changed its name. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but but beyond that, I, I don't think we've seen anything like the exuberance we saw going into the tech boom and bust or the the GFC. The, the reason I do get worried about America, though, is that its um, its shutdown has been a bit half-hearted. They've left things a bit too late, like Italy did, and therefore they seem further away from getting their coronavirus situation under control compared to, say, Australia. I, uh, fingers crossed in relation to Australia again, but... Um, that, that, I think, is the biggest worry in the US. Yeah. The other thing I don't like about America is that I, I like the fact that they've got a huge stimulus program. I think that's very important. <laughs> huge. But, uh, they need to learn from Australia here, and uh, I think Australia um, keeps trying one thing that moves on to the next thing. What uh, Scott Morrison didn't, probably didn't like and Josh Frydenberg probably didn't like was all those people queued up outside Centrelink. Not a good look, not a good thing, horrible um, that was going to mean much higher unemployment. So what does he do? They go back to the drawing books and come up with the wage subsidy, which I think was a very good move because it keeps people in jobs, keeps them connected to their employer, helps the business out if they're still paying their wages, helps the worker out if the business can't pay the wages and has and stood people down. Mm. Those people can't be defined as unemployed. They're not. <laughs> they're at home. They're getting paid $1,500 a fortnight. Yeah, but they're not unemployed. That also, I think is very important. Also, it's an efficiency move as well. Let's face it, because then the small businesses or, or businesses are actually then distributing uh, welfare effectively rather than Centrelink. That's right. They are, and they've got a, a choice as to how precisely they do it. If the company is already paying the salaries, then the company gets to keep that fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah. If the company had to stand the people down, then it just passes the money on. There's fine, fine tuning around that. If the person was getting paid less than fifteen hundred dollars, then you've got to top it up so the person gets the fifteen hundred dollars. Mm. Some people actually get more 
than yeah. they used to get paid. It, it is a good move and it's it's also time limited, six months starting I think into March or starting yeah. now basically. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully if the shutdown goes six months and it's no longer than that, talking three months this morning, but um, hopefully if it's that's the length of time, then, then a lot of people will be protected. Whereas America's gone down the path we originally went down, which was top up unemployment benefits, uh, which then means people still lose their jobs and get unemployed. Yeah. I, I tend to prefer the Australian approach um, for a whole bunch of reasons. It's, it's good psychologically for the people affected, good for the businesses, uh, keeps the headline unemployment rate down. Um, so I, I think that's a far healthier approach than the US one. Also, yeah. businesses are more likely about to kick off and continue trading at the end of it rather than then have to start from a standing start, a standing start you know. So I, I personally, as a business owner who potentially might need to benefit from this, I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you should be. And uh, I don't know, there's lots of Australians who are, I mean, we have this question, well, how are we going to fund this? You know, where's all the money going to come? Mm, are we just yeah. going to make it up or get it out of thin air? Well, the short answer is that they will borrow it uh, from other Australians. Many Australians still have their jobs. They're at home, working at home, but they're not spending. Mm. Uh, that money just goes into their bank accounts. So the federal government logically says, okay, we've got all this money sitting around. Yeah, let's borrow some of it and help us get through this period. And, yes, we'll, be, we'll end up with a bit of debt. Um, maybe I won't get the tax cuts I was looking forward to and you guys won't either in 2022. Mm. But I reckon that's a price we're prepared to pay to keep the foundations of the economy intact and to enable a good start-up when the time comes once the virus is back under control. Yeah. And the wage subsidy certainly uh, helps us do that. I mean, imagine if a business has to lay all its people off and five months' time it finds that demand's come back again. Mm. Um, but it's got to go and hire all those people. People yeah. have to apply for the jobs. What a complete waste of time. You know? Let's mm. just keep them in those jobs that hibernating at home. Totally agree. I mean, it, it's it's inefficient. But I'm always curious. I'm not an economist, okay, but I wonder whether in a way the way that governments are borrowing money is a bit like a giant Ponzi scheme. <laughs> It'll all have to disappear up its own bum at some point. Well, it goes somewhere. <laughs> it's, uh, well, there's lots of debate about this. Um, the simple answer is take a chillax or do something like that. <laughs> I googled that word the other day. I never knew where it came from. It's a combination of chill and relax um, for those who didn't get it. But anyway, uh, th- this is the way it works. Australia has a level of public debt, and that's past deficits added up, basically. Uh, if you allow for the assets of the Reserve Bank and the Future Fund, our net public debt is around 22% of GDP yeah. in Australia. That's the number. Mm. Um, in America, it's around 80% of GDP and in comparable countries, uh, comparable advanced countries, Europe, Japan and so on, it averages around 80%. So we've got about a quarter of the net public debt that these other countries have. Yeah. So we are in a better position to take on more public debt. Um, it does involve borrowing from this Australian public, so the budget deficit's going to look worse this year and next. And that has to be paid down at some point. Mm. Um, obviously, in the short term, it's a little bit easier for the government to borrow because the interest rates are hardly anything. You know, we think we've got low mortgage rates. They're borrowing in the wholesale market. Uh, they can borrow for three years at 0.25%. They can borrow for, for 10 years at about 0.75%. Yeah. Um, so it's not costing them a lot in interest to borrow. Um, the trick... I think is, yeah, at some point we need to start paying it down. That might mean higher taxes one day down the track. Um, Obviously, the Reserve Bank is helping out all of this because it's now doing a thing called quantitative easing, which involves using printed money to buy government bonds, not directly from the government, but in the money market. It may be the case that the Reserve Bank will have to hold those bonds for longer in their their balance sheets. But I, I think at the end of the day, it is something that Australia can afford to do. We do have relatively low public debts. There are a bunch of people earning income, sitting around at home, doing their job but not spending much money. You know, can't go on the holiday, can't buy the new car they wanted, can't maybe not for a little while they can't rush out and buy a new property they they were thinking of doing. So those things are going to mean the saving rate for many Australians will actually go up. And yeah, I'm harking back to Keynesian economics. If you have studied economics, it makes sense in times like these for the government to borrow that money and put yeah. it in better use. Mm. So you said um. I mean, they're around, one of the things about getting government debt or any debt, even just personal debt, is inflation, right? So if you've got 
over time if that debt is worth less because the dollar's worth less. The problem is I think a lot of economies have been trying to get inflation and they can't get it. So they've got this debt. And yes, it's low interest rates, but they can't. it's still worth the same every year. Do you think that's a problem where they just can't really inflate it away, which has been the old strategy? It is a bit of an issue. Uh, I, I have a feeling that at some point inflation will start to pick up mm. because if you think about the low inflation environment we came into, it was partly due to globalisation. Uh, globalisation has sort of been in a bit of a retreat lately, obviously led by <laughs> Donald Trump, and it's now going to be in a bigger retreat because lots of countries will say, you know, we want to use that anti-malarial drug as an antiviral for COVID, but you guys are making it. We can't get it. So it looks like, yeah, we have to make it ourselves. Yeah. Um, mm. You can imagine a situation where countries go through a process saying, well, we need to make these essential items. Um, and so there'll be a bit of an unwind of globalisation, which can mean a bit of upward pressure on prices. Mm. Uh, also, you've got all these central banks out there continuously pumping money to the system, which could eventually give us some inflation. But you're right, right now, inflation is very low. That makes it a lot harder to inflate that debt away. Uh, you know, likewise for Australians, borrowing on their home, they end up with that debt for much longer because it yeah. stays at that level in real terms and their wages don't go up as much. Exactly. So that, that is an issue. Uh, it could mean we're left with the debt for longer, but I, I, I do think at some point out there, all this uh, stimulus and what have you might cause a bit of a pickup in inflation, probably not hyperinflation because we've still got technological innovation mm. working through the system, keeping prices down. But I, I suspect that at some point inflation might pick up a little bit. Is that the problem Japan's had though, is that they've just kept on taking government debt, thinking they can inflate it away, but just haven't been able to get the economy to grow as fast to kind of start to pay that off. Cause there's always the concern that we're going to become like Japan, Japan, I guess, in terms of lots of higher debt, um, and very low rates for a very, very long time. That's right. Uh, Japan has been in this situation now for almost two decades. <laughs> uh, interestingly, and sometimes we refer to, you know, we're all going to go Japanese, turning Japanese or something. We'll end up yeah. like Japan. <laughs> I mean, Japan's a little bit of a complicated one. I mean, they, they don't rely on foreign savings either, so it's just the household sector and the corporate sector lending to the government. Mm. So they owe it to themselves. It's not like Greece or something. Yeah, um, okay. And Greece uh, obviously ran into trouble because they had to borrow from others and they couldn't deflate their currency. So they had to pay exorbitant interest rates and that led to a, the debt crisis in Greece. But um, Japan's one's an interesting one. Their economic growth rate hasn't been too bad. It may look very slow, but their population is actually falling. Yeah. And you allow for that their real rate of economic growth hasn't been too bad. It's been comparable to ours over the last decade or so. Um, but by the same token, they haven't got the inflation you'd normally expect to start coming through, and that's meant that their debt, public debt burden has remained higher for longer. Flip side, though, of course, is that their interest rates, government borrowing rates in Japan are about zero. So they're not paying any interest on this. Uh, yeah. Yes. I'm curious, as I said earlier, I've, I've not studied economics ever. Um, read a bit about it, but I'm a complete novice. So why do we need growth? And I know that growth has been slowing down over previous years. And you said that we're going into this, you know, not coming out of a boom. But, and so we've been getting used to a lower growth environment, I think, in, in recent years. But why do we need growth? Why can't we just, you know, get on with life without having to worry about growth? Well, that's uh, an interesting philosophical question. Um, in some ways, uh, growth, the growth phenomenon is a little bit complicated. Um, the basic reason we need a bit of growth is that there's new entrants to the workforce each year and we need to absorb those people. Mm. So therefore we need to expand the economy. A big chunk of those new entrants are coming from immigrants. So you can make an argument that if we cut our immigration level to zero, then we can do with much lower economic growth because we don't need to grow the economy to absorb those new entrants to, into the workforce. Mm. Um, so it's really, you know, we think about Australia, the norm used to be 3% economic growth. Uh, population growth is about 1.5%. We cut out the migrants. Um, you could, it's even lower. Uh, so the, the real focus should be on that component of what you call per capita growth, growth in the economy beyond the growth in the population, and that relates to rising living standards. 
I, I guess it comes back to what we really want. If we want our living standards to rise over time, feel that we're getting ahead. So we do need some economic growth, mm. but it mainly relates to just a rise in living standards. I, I kind of think in some ways you could sort of imagine a situation where you've got everything you want and then mm. why would you need to have any more growth because you've got everything. But it seems to me that uh, human desire continues to want more. I remember when I started my career 35 years ago, an equity analyst said, well, we've got everything we want. You know, we've got a microwave, we've got dishwashers, we've got wall-to-wall carpet. This is in the 1980s. (laughs) Getting air conditioning, uh, our cars start when we want them to. What more do we need? Uh, Got colour TV, videos. What more do we need? And then uh, here we are 35 years later and lots of other things have come along um, <laughs> that uh, have sort of superseded those things, including the technology we're using today to record this podcast yes. um, and the things that people are using to, to work at home from and to entertain themselves at night time. So uh, I, I think it really comes down to human ingenuity and, and I think a lot of the origin and growth comes from that. I mean, there is a desire to, 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 to see you standard improve but there's also i think a desire to make better things to come up with better ways of doing things and that results in economic growth which would in uh, a way could be the upshot of this whole thing you know i think you know i just this conversation is going in a different direction of course but you know the, the planet's groaning under the weight of our, our desire to live better and so yes it's going to be an interesting to see the ingenuity and the, and that comes out of um six months being forced to, to work from home and some businesses being forced to reinvent themselves it's a very interesting world it will and our carbon footprint will go down dramatically through this period carbon emissions will, will collapse uh, obviously the power stations are still going but the uh you know, the stuff belching out of our cars mm. you know, and lots of other things won't be. Um, so it, it could accelerate that shift you know, to the extent that more people do uh, more online activity, work from home. It, yeah. it probably accentuates the shift to a sort of a lower carbon future. I mean, there is a lot of debate about, you know, the, the, the world groaning under the weight of um, human ingenuity. But, I mean, there's two ways of looking at this, and this is where we get into the dismal science of economics the, the negative view was Thomas Malthus who said something like there's innumerable desires, but limited resources. And therefore eventually, you know, that's the, that's the basic economic problem. And eventually the world runs out of food and we'll all die and so on. Um, but that was over two or 300 years ago. Then we saw the club of Rome, mm. uh, various others in the late sixties, seventies, say similar sort of things. But what mankind has managed to do is reduce its requirement for resources so a lot of the growth we've experienced in recent years has been in the form of technology, which doesn't really require a lot of resources. You know, the amount of metals and stuff that goes into a TV has declined compared to the past. Um, cars are now a lot more fuel efficient, um, far more fuel efficient. In fact, uh, airlines the same. So we, we, we do seem to be using less and less of things. Well, is, that, um, is that sort of per car, for instance, uses less raw material, less fuel, all that sort of stuff, but then you've got more human beings with cars? That's true. So you have to manage that somehow. Mm. And that's, I think, the big challenge here that advanced countries have seen yeah, it's probably easier in advanced countries to control their emissions yeah. and use of resources, but it is harder in emerging countries. And emerging countries say, well, we just want to get the same living standard you have. So yeah. how can you stop us from putting in these power stations or whatever? So there is an issue there, but I kind of think that it's up to the advanced countries to lead the way there. Yeah, and help which we're the, not. Uh, emerging, which we're not. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> so, Scott Morrison, I've been shouting at the TV like most Australians around uh, inaction, I guess, to do the hard things. But if you were, say, him, what were some of the things that do you reckon they've done enough, um, you know, in terms of stimulus, or would you have done less, or would you have done more, or would you have done anything different if you were kind of trying to spike the economy back into life, um, what would you have done? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, it's easy to take pot shots at them yeah. and everyone criticises the Prime Minister and the government, but actually I think they've been in line with my thinking. When the issue started to come to the fore in early March particularly, I thought they needed to do at least a 1% of GDP stimulus, mm-hmm. which... Thursday, three weeks ago, they came up with. Uh, that was the 
roughly 20 billion or something stimulus. Uh, and I thought that that was pretty good. They've done this, you know, and then, then we worked out, Oh, that's not enough at all. Uh, and then, yeah, they need to do more. Yeah. Maybe it needs to be 60 billion. (laughs) And that's the one from Sunday a week ago, not last Sunday, the one before. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, we see all the people lined up out of Centrelink, outside Centrelink, um, and we moved to the job subsidy, which is another $130 billion. So if you add them all up, you get about $200 billion, particularly if you add in the $11 billion or so the states yeah. have done. So I think they've, they've sort of roughly been in line with my thinking. I, I did think earlier that a wage subsidy was the way to go, mm. and this was something that was being talked about at the time, and I thought that was a good idea. And so I was a little bit surprised they didn't do that with the second stimulus package. But that's the only difference I would have with them and they have got there anyway. And I like the the ability of uh, the government to sort of take ideas from different sides of politics and mm. admit that they could have done things better, which uh, I think is quite healthy in Australia to see that sort of thing. And also to, to see these things go through parliament so quickly is also very good. So yeah. I, I, by and large, I'd give, I'd give them a, a big tick for all of this. And what about the RBA through this journey? I mean, uh, you know, do you think that the quantitative easing thing's a good idea and, you know, would you do more or less or you know, what's your view on that? Well, they've moved for a quick, very quickly. I, yeah. I thought for some time the economy was weaker than the RBA was assuming. They kept mm. saying, well, we're going to be picking up through this year and I didn't think they would. I didn't think we would pick up. Um, and so I, I was thinking they should have been cutting interest rates earlier. Yeah. Now, obviously, coronavirus then came along and changed the situation dramatically and they've realised that they need to do more and they have reacted very quickly. So I, so far, I think what they've done is the right thing. I, I cut rates to near zero, not good for my mother, um, who has some money in bank deposits, well, like we all do to some degree, um, but particularly for older Australians living off that money, it's not good. But, yeah, the amount of household debt in Australia is roughly double the value of household bank deposits. So the benefit uh, for yeah. the household sector as a whole from lower interest rates swamps the loss of income for those who miss out on low, get lower bank deposit rates. But uh, I think the move into quantitative easing is a good move. They need to do that. Um, what was happening a couple of weeks ago when the RBI made their uh, mid-March emergency announcements was that markets were starting to become dysfunctional the 10-year bond yield was going through the roof, uh, yeah. having fallen sharply. You sort of put that in some perspective. That's be- that was partly because uh, fund managers had seen their share values fall and then they start to get redemptions. Or people just say, okay, get me out of the high-growth option. I'll yes. switch on my super to the low-growth option. That yeah. means by definition they have to sell some assets to do yeah. that. Um they were a bit loath to sell shares. They were doing a bit of that, but they often have to sell their winning positions, which includes government bonds, and bonds mm. have been rallying. So suddenly you get this wave of selling of bonds, not just in Australia but globally, and bond yields start rising. And that was a bit of a perverse outcome. Central banks needed to intervene and change that. We're also starting to see markets become dysfunctional. Yeah, uh, It's getting harder for the banks to raise money in the money market. They get a big chunk of their money from bank deposits yeah. that they lend out to home, homeowners and borrowers, but they also get a big chunk um, from the money markets and the money markets were getting harder to access. So I think it was right for the RBA to cut rates, undertake quantitative easing to get the bond market back under control, push mm-hmm. bond yields back down, and at the same time um, provide cheap funding for the banks. It's, you know, that $90 billion they provided uh, almost covers the $100 billion that the four major banks access each year from the money market. So mm-hmm. that I think was a good move. And the low cost of it, 0.25%, has enabled the banks to cut a whole range of interest rates and yeah. also offer these uh, six-month payment um, uh, holidays, if you call it that. So because it's sort of it's lowered their cost of funding yeah. dramatically and so therefore they can say, okay, well, we can do a whole bunch of things to help out our customers through this period. So that I think was all great stuff. There's probably some more things the Reserve Bank will have to do. They've said they won't cut interest rates negative. They reaffirmed that yesterday, so 0.25% is probably the low. Mm. Uh, but they may have to, uh, I suspect, ex- extend that uh, cheap funding program for the banks um, a little bit, uh, maybe for another year, 
going into next year as well. Um, and they may also have to do some of the uh, lending programs that the Fed is doing. The, the US Federal Reserve has been buying up corporate debt to, to bring down corporate borrowing rates. Um, we may have to see the Reserve Bank do the same sort of thing in Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of uh, companies need to borrow money, which pretty much every company wants to, uh, you know, put more money in the in the back in the bottom drawer, I guess, at the moment. If, and then I guess the companies that are struggling, their their cost of funding is going to be rising quite sharply, I guess. That's right, and therefore, uh, it's, it's it's key role here for the central bank to intervene and get that cost of funding back yep. down. That that's what it's all about. Make sure that the banks can still lend to companies if they. If companies need it, uh, or alternatively, make it easier for companies to roll over any uh, bonds that they have. If you think back to the time of the GFC, there was mm. a couple of problems at the time. One is banks found it harder to access funding. Uh, it took a while, while longer for the Reserve Bank to cotton on and do something about that, but they did. But it just took a little bit longer. And likewise, uh, you had these stories about various companies having to roll over uh, borrowings. Uh, yeah. Some of the property trusts were at the forefront of that. Mm. Um, and so what, what these moves by the Reserve Bank have done is sort of make it easier to avoid a refinancing crunch yeah. for Australian companies, if you like. So that's why we're not seeing those sort of headlines. We may still see some of them, but, um, you know, the quick action by the central bank and the Federal Reserve in the US is helping to head that off. So How you do you see this rolling into the property market? <laughs> Well, it is going to impact the property market and it already has because we've now banned uh, traditional um, open auctions. Houses and auctions, open yes. houses and auctions. And mm. that led to a kerfuffle <laughs> last weekend where yes. there was lots of properties all lined up and so listings went through the roof and uh, um, buyers held back because, you know, they're a bit wary of online buying perhaps or, you know, that, everyone's sort of thinking, well, maybe now is not the best time to, to move, perhaps. Well, there's quite a bit of transaction. There's quite a few transactions going on. And it's sort of interesting because it really has stuffed up one of our indicators, hasn't it? I mean, we, we use auction clearance rates, as a, <laughs> you know, and uh, as, a, as a pretty almost timely benchmark of what's happening in the market. And all of a sudden it's like completely stuffed. What do we look at? How do we measure well, yeah, it? Yeah, it is right. It is useless. 31%. <laughs> Thirty yeah. percent is a meaningless number now. If you, you translate that to house prices, they're going to crash. Um, but it's also but it, it's, it's not so of, useful. But one of the reasons it's you know thirty odd percent is because there's a whole bunch of properties that were withdrawn from auction that purely was because the agent's decision to to sell them differently, not because there was no interest. Um, whereas normally properties are withdrawn from from auction because there's no interest, and so that goes into the clearance rate, and it's it's a it, it's reflective of the market conditions. Whereas this withdrawal of property from auction is not reflective of market conditions so much as as the restrictions have been put in place and whether they want to go online or not, or whether they can go online or not. That's so, right. That's yeah. that's right. It, it's last weekend's auction clearance rates aren't uh, so <laughs> no. useful. They're not um, a trend, are they? Yeah. <laughs> well, there are something or other, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wouldn't you wouldn't read too much into them either way. Okay. Um, so, like every day, uh, and, you're and, pretty much on every paper today. Um, you're pretty much every paper's cotton on that you said the potentially twenty percent falls in property market, which is. Australia's favourite pastime. So, I mean, you know, obviously you've, you've uh, probably put a bit more context to that in those conversations with the media, right? But they always latch on to that 20%. Yeah, they do. Uh, there is a bit of context around that. It, is, it does get complicated every time I look at it because there's some new force operating in a different direction. Uh, when I put those forecasts together, my base case was a 5% decline. Yeah. Um, and this was before... Uh, any um, talk of a bank holiday or a bank payment yes. holiday or wage yes. subsidies. Um, so I thought the unemployment rate would probably go up to 7.5%. Uh, that would cause buyers to hold back and we'd see prices give up about half of the gains we've seen since the middle of last year. Mm. So to put it all in context, national property prices peaked uh, around September, I think it was, uh, 2017 fell about 10% to their low point, which was June last year, then has since rallied about 10%, yep. uh, taking them back to around their, their previous highs, depending on the state you're in, city you're in. Uh, but that's the national sort of capital city average. I, I thought, well, you know, if unemployment goes up, that's going to cause a bit of a hit to the property market. Prices might fall off 5% uh, through this 
period of uncertainty. And then, you know, once we come out the other side, there'll be a lot of pent up demand, interest rates will be lower, there'll be stimulus in the system, and then we'll, we'll resume the, um, the rising trend. Maybe not at the same rate we've seen since the middle of last year, but still resume the rising trend. I had a, a risk case scenario, which is the 20% number, which is seeing the unemployment rate goes to 10%, you know, everything's a lot deeper. Now, since then, on the one hand, you could argue, well, the shutdowns have intensified, the hit to the economy is clearly going to be deeper than I was assuming a couple of weeks back. Um, therefore, we're close to the 20%. Working the other way, though, is the uh, bank uh, payment holiday, yeah. people affected. Um, so, therefore, you probably not, and also wage subsidies. So, we're probably not going to see a lot of forced selling through this period um, in any case. And the low uh, bank rates, I guess, with you know, fixed and rates. We've still got, and we've still got the low rates. So I, I think on balance prices will come off a bit. But it's, uh, there's so many conflicting forces here that I think it would be, you know, basically it'll probably come off at least 5%, but I'd, I'd upper, upper end 20%, but somewhere in that range depending on the city. Um, but yes, there are a lot of conflicting forces here and it is a bit like the share market. You know, people say, oh, it's the share market bottom now and it's, oh, it could come down another, could come down some more. But then you sort of think, well, it's the same for property buyers as share buyers. You sort of think, well, if you see prices come off a little bit and the market gets very quiet and you can still manage to buy a property, then you, you might take advantage of the quiet mm. times or the lower prices to do that. Because it will be quite at times. <laughs> there'll be less uh, sellers and there'll certainly be a lot of less buyers out there yep. um, for a little while. But, you know, you'd sort of, you do what, uh, you know, the term dollar cost averaging. Yep. You can't quite do it with um, with property because you don't have, you can't <laughs> spread it out across lots of buildings unless you're really rich. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah exactly. But you, you might sort of use this period to sort of, you know, quietly look around see things that you, you think you might have missed out on and then you, good chance you may pick them up at a bargain or a lower price than they, they got to in March, mm. the highs of March. So that's the way I said it. One thing is known for sure, and that is there will be less transactions through this period yep. um, simply because people will be less comfortable buying things on the back of uh, online viewing perhaps. Um, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sellers, sellers might, uh, sellers might think, oh well, I'll just wait a little bit longer. But it, it'd be both ways, you know. The yes. sellers will be saying, well, I'm not going to sell now. I'll just wait till things are back to normal. You know, what do I, what do I want to move for now? You know, mm. what about social distancing? And buyers will think the same. So everyone will go yeah. into a bit of hibernation. Um, but you know, providing we're success, this is critically important here. And it relates to the broader economy. But providing we're successful in minimizing the collateral damage to the economy. So we take the hit from the virus, we have the recession, it feels a bit depressionary in terms of the speed of the fall and the extent of the fall, mm. providing we keep the bulk of companies and individuals in yes. reasonable shape in hibernation so they can come at the other side, not excessively encumbered and, 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 and still solvent, then you have to allow that the property market, like the rest of the economy, will then start to come back again. Um, and in that scenario, yeah, just like in shares, now's the time you start looking around, I suppose. You may not rush in, but you, you may have a look around to see what bargains you can pick up, properties you can pick up that you, you may have thought just two weeks ago you had no chance of getting. Yeah. I think it's a little bit similar in some regards to the end of 2018 where most people didn't recognise that the bottom was almost upon us pretty much December 18. I think we all accept now. Um, and you know, there was opportunity there. If you look back two years earlier to certainly buy it substantially less, a lot of, a lot of good properties are around. And I think now if you've got motivated owners, cause there are people that get caught in the crossfire here, the people that have actually bought uh, on the strength of the market previously yep. and took the risk thinking they didn't have bridging finance in place. And all of a sudden they're under a, a lot of stress, but that's a finite group of people. Um, yeah that put themselves in that situation. And then you, there will be some people who basically live month to month on, on credit card and they're going to feel the pressure at some point and they'll come on, but it's not uniform, is it? I mean, there's not like in one street, you're not going to have everybody sell. No, you won't. 
most people won't uh, won't do anything. Mm. Um, most people will still, even if unemployment goes to, let's say, worst case, we get to twenty percent, eighty percent of people will still have a job. So mm. Yeah, they will keep going, but and that's an absolute worst case. I don't think we're going to see that, but. Um, but some it's, areas it's, will get a lot more than 20%. So I think, you know, there's obviously the property market, but then within there there's, you know, cities and then within the cities there's, you know, inner ring, middle ring, outer ring. And then, um, but then there's also kind of regional areas as well. I mean, what parts of Australia do you think that are, are not going to be able to bounce back, say, um, you know, the services industries in the capital cities, but, you know, like tourism areas and things like that, what areas do you think are really going to take you know, find it hard the next, you know, coming period? Oh, I think retail is probably the most at risk. Yeah, you know, we're, we're going to be going out eventually to restaurants and cafes again and we're going to go on holidays um, and we're going to use personal services like beauticians and mm. others and go to the gym and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but one area that may take longer to recover is retailing. That's, that's probably the most at risk sector. It was already struggling a bit yeah. uh, with the shift to online and this will probably accentuate that to some degree. Um, just as the rise in the Aussie dollar did uh, a decade or so ago and we, we uh, discovered how cheap things can be online, yeah, this, this will push a new group of people to, to online purchasing as well. So re- retailing will take a bit longer to recover than the rest I would think. Will it recover though? Or will it have to reinvent itself? Because I mean, even online was actually pretty soft before this. Yeah, it was. Well, that was because the economy generally was pretty soft. Um, mm. So people were delaying discretionary spending. Now they're, they're cutting discretionary spending. Uh, it, it, I, I think it'll survive, but yeah, it does have to reinvent itself. I mean, smart shopping centers are doing that. So they, they become a destination of entertainment. So you go mm. there and you do a bit of your shopping, but you also do, uh, things that entertain you. Um, and so that's the key to it. So I, I think it will just have to reinvent itself. Um, and many will do that successfully. Obviously a lot of businesses already had good online presence and mm. they, they will survive. Those that didn't have good on, online presence might uh, struggle mm. a lot more. You um, did an interesting blog, different tact um, a few years ago that I love. It was basically the common mistakes that investors make. Um, now, they're all good points, but point four I thought was quite uh, hilarious. She said uh, one of the mistakes is investors rely on experts to tell you where the market's going a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Can you, can you kind of elaborate on that? Um, because I do think it's, you know, Australians or the world wants to follow experts, but you know, there are challenges with that approach. <laughs> that's right. No matter how many times I've written that, I've even written whole uh, notes on it. Um, uh, how difficult point forecasting is in particular, but still people want the point forecasts and they write them down and then <laughs> they go into tables and newspapers and then after a year or so they go back and say who got closest and who was further away, even though it's a bit of a pointless exercise in some yeah. ways. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, I'm an economist, I'll get thrown out of the economist. Don't worry, we still have a job. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the reality is that when you make a forecast, it's at that point in time and based on the information you have at that point in time, and as time goes by, you'll revise that forecast up or down. Uh, obviously, we've all had to do that in relation to how this year will pan out. Yeah. Uh, and but so if you just focus on that point forecast line, say I've got, got got my expert opinion now. I'll just go on that. It's it's not going to be that reliable um, because new information comes in, and that that forecast will need revising. Mm. The point there is that. Uh, uh, the reality there, forecasting was so easy, we wouldn't be doing this or I wouldn't be doing this. Um, uh, I'd be off somewhere else. You know, I used to say in the south of France, sipping champagne, oh, but do you want to sell with you? I wouldn't want to be in the south of France at the moment. Yeah. Um, sipping champagne. <laughs> Italy. I'd rather, I'd rather be here. Yes. <laughs> um, I've got champagne out. But uh, forecasting is dif- difficult. Um, what do you think some of the major, uh, the major biases though that, you know, that you're susceptible to like I am, like everyone is that, you know, basically means that even forecasters are, are struggling to process things kind of rationally. Yeah, that's right. Forecasters suffer from the same biases as everybody else. And one of the worst biases is to give too much weight to the current situation. So if things are going up and they've been going up for a while, you just assume that it will just keep going up. And if things are going down, you just assume they'll keep going down or stay down. 
another one is to uh, look for that we, we call that representativeness, you know, sort of biased by the current situation. There's another one where you look for confirming information, so confirmation bias. So yeah. you can see this on Twitter, the, the opinions of people regarding the housing market. If you're a gloomy sort of person, then you just get follow a certain set of, uh, of prognosticators yeah. because they align with your gloominess um, and yeah. vice versa for the optimists. So you just look for confirming information. So if you've got a forecast, prices will go down then you look for those who confirm that and that this reinforces your view. Another one is to anchor and adjust, um, yeah. get some new information. It's, it's actually suggests things are radically changing. And I reckon uh, I was subject to a bit of this around May last year. Yeah. So at May, going into May last year, I thought there was quite a bit more downside in the Australian property market. Um, we had the May election, we had the rate cuts and so on. And I adjusted my view and said, well, we may be close to the bottom, but I didn't quickly turn around enough you know i sort of said mm. you know this this is a complete new ball game we're now going up um i sort of just hedged it a little bit so that was a classic case of anchor and adjust i just <laughs> adjusted my forecast a little bit but i should have gone the full way and said you know we've probably seen the low we're taking off and i did that uh, a month or so later um, so i got in there in the end but anchor and adjust is we just incrementally change your forecast whereas the new information would suggest a more need for a more radical change. Another one is to be overly influenced by the crowd. Yeah. So when everyone's buying, say, you start getting convinced the only way is up, you know, get as much debt as possible, I'll be fine, yeah. nothing to worry about at all. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, likewise when everything is doom and gloom, like it is at the moment, <laughs> it's going to get yes. a little bit worse. Um, you think, oh, gee whiz, it's obvious, you know, it's all gloomy. Just look at the news, the news on the TV and da-da-da. Um, and so people get subject to crowd psychology, whereas all the evidence tells us that the crowd is wrong at the extreme. You know, when the crowd is the most bullish, mm. that's usually a time when the risk is getting greatest uh, and when the crowd is most negative uh, and everyone is negative and everyone's sold, and that's usually the time when we're getting close to the bottom. Uh, so they're, I guess, four of the main ones, yeah. but they, they affect, I mean, economists, forecasters, experts, whatever you call them, all get affected by those things. Mm. But they try and by looking at, by looking at history, by looking at um, uh, relationships known to apply between certain variables, they usually cut interest rates that positive for the property market. Yeah. You try and bias, you try and screen out for those biases. And I think the other thing that experts can give you or economists can give you is some sense of history. Uh, well, this, I think, is critically important. The, if you went back to all the years that you've been doing this, has every year what you think's going to happen hasn't happened and what you think might, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't happen has happened? You know, like, you know, we've got Corona, we've got the bushfires, we've got Trump, Brexit. You know, we could go back every year, Euro debt crisis, GFC, yeah, eleven tech stocks. Like you know, do you really just every year you just have no idea what's going to happen, and um, and that's and that's just one of the real challenges of really forecasting is that the unthinkable happens. That's right, uh, and it is true. Every year, there's something comes along from left field and surprises you. And a well-known economist uh, called Dr. Don Stammy used to call that factor X, or still calls that factor X. Uh, but, but what I would say though is that despite those things, most of the time it sort of pans out okay. Yeah. Uh, if you think about the Australian economy, the Australian well, take the Australian share market because it's got data back a long time, eight years out of 10 since 1900, it has a positive return. Yeah. Uh, so generally things turn out okay. I mean, usually in those okay years, I'm surprised at the strength of the market. It goes up by a lot more than I thought it would. Uh, even well, though bears, I, isn't it? the gummy versus the grizzly, which I think the gummy, yeah, that's another. I like that one because uh, you know, there's a debate about now: are we in a gummy bear or a grizzly bear? It feels pretty grizzly, but <laughs> there is a chance that in 12 months' time we could actually be higher if we manage this well. Um, and so, therefore, it's uh, not not quite as grizzly. It's like the, the little uh, lollies taste of gummy bear. Not that I've ever had a gummy bear, but I did see a pack. Haven't you? <laughs> no, I haven't, I've never had one. <laughs> we will include the links to these articles that you've written on this, uh, actually, in the show notes for this. But it is interesting because you know hindsight is so wonderful, isn't it? We can. Yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to 12 months. We look back and say, hmm, who actually did predict this, and who that's, who were too bullish or too bearish. 
Yeah, that's right. Everything's clear in hindsight. So that's why when people uh, go through these events, they say, well, how come you didn't predict it? It's pretty obvious this was going to happen, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> did you predict the GFC? Did you predict the 87 growth? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, and, and if you look back through history, though, uh, I mean, yeah, those things seem pretty obvious now that they, were, they happened. Um, but it makes it look more certain that that would happen, yeah. that any disaster was a certainty. Whereas if you go through all my career, I've had people coming along with absolute certainty saying we're all going to be ruined. Yes. Mm. Whether it's yeah. this year or next year or next year, every year there's been yeah. a lot of that. And now we're more exposed to that on the internet. And yes. so we get uh, affected by that doom and gloom. You know, in 2016, I remember I was reading articles on the internet yeah. by well-known people, well-qualified, yeah. all these sorts of things. They were talking about the financial crisis of 2016. It turned out okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. People convinced that the trade war was going to destroy the world between the Trump and China, mm. or the Brexit and Trump getting it elected, which were surprises, um, would destroy things. But 2017 was actually a good year. This is one of the articles that you've written. 2016, in, rather. 2016 was that year. 2016 was a good year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One, one of the articles that you've, you've written has got this chart. And once again, we'll include the link in the show notes. It's got a chart in there about the bear markets in Australian shares since 1900. And it is very interesting looking through that because I think, okay, well, World War II, for instance, you know, you've got 61 months it lasted for, which, of course, that's five year war. It was six years, yeah. really, wasn't it? Um, you know, and then it fell over that period of time, 32%. And then after 12 months after the end of the war, it was up 30. But, but also, I mean, because I was born in, I'm not going to say when I was born, I think everyone's probably guessed it if they've listened to this podcast enough, but I certainly was alive in the 70s, put it that way. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think the 70 to 71, you know, the share market fell 39%. Well, my parents didn't have to sell their house. You know, 73 to 74 share market went down 59%. My parents still didn't have to sell their house. 76 to, you know, you know what I mean? It's like we all think, oh, my God. God, this is it. The world's going to end. Actually, no, no, it isn't. We're going to keep living. <laughs> if we're going to need well, that's to right. I mean, there, there were some bad things happened around that 59% fall in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Elvis um, uh, appeared via satellite from Hawaii in January 73 when the market peaked. And then, you know, some people say he put on weight. I don't really believe it and left the building. I'm still debating that one as well. And then, <laughs> and then my favourite TV show, The Brady Bunch, was canned in 74, which was the oh, final nail in the coffin for the share yes. market. Um, and, uh, you know, you, but anyway, beyond those things, <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> the end of the world. My parents kept their house. Yeah. I think somewhere in that period, my father managed to eliminate his debt, mm. uh, which he'd taken out in 1956. Um, and uh, so we, we survived it. Um, even though it did feel terrible at the time. Yeah. Well, that's a big point, actually. I think a lot of people were in, you know, more uh, lower debt versus income. So they were being able to get on their mortgages a lot more. So potentially would have been a lot less debt um, over those years, potentially. A different world. But, I mean, the point I want to make is that we are going to continue living. It's like when I watched 9-11, you know, I was like, oh, my God, life is going to change forever, and it has, but we still fundamentally keep on living. And and this too will have the same outcome at some point. We'll just get on with it. And it'll be some people will be impacted more than others, obviously, and we need to be compassionate around that. But the fact is we will keep on going. So what, it's, what do you see at the end of all this, Shane? <laughs> well, this too will pass like all those other things, all of these things are slightly different from the previous crisis. Mm. They also, they all follow a pattern, you know, some horrible shock, um, markets come down, uh, that affects the economy you know, and can affect the, the property market. And then you get to a point where the news starts to become a bit less negative. Yeah. I don't know, maybe fingers crossed Italy starts to get its cases under control. If they mm. can, then maybe we can. Uh, and then eventually, you know, the, maybe there's some medical advance, yep. uh, antivirals, vaccines, or we just managed to get it under control so we can relax the, the shutdowns a little bit. And then we'll start to recover again. And then in a yep. couple of years' time, we'll be talking about something else very different. Uh, <laughs> and we'll move on to the next, uh, the next thing. Um, and it will become part of the history books. I will just have that, that little table there of uh, share market bear markets and we'll know whether it's a gummy or a grizzly mm. <laughs> yeah. through that period and it will be a, a tough time. But, yeah, you're right, we will move on. 
um, the history of the share market of the Australian property market, which incidentally have similar long-term returns once you allow for dividends and uh, uh, rents um, and allow for costs and so on. Um, The history of those things is that they have occasional setbacks. I think one of the worst setbacks in the Australian property market was in World War II, it started to come down uh, through the Great Depression, but obviously the property market was hit in World War II, particularly when the midget submarines broke into Sydney yes. Harbour. And all the people in the eastern suburbs said, oh, gee whiz, we've got to get out of here, and they sold up and moved to Barrel. I think that's what happened. Sydney <laughs> 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 property prices there is hit a bit of a hole. There's a great show uh, um, on ABC, uh, well, it was a great show, and it's called Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed? And it was it's uh, hosted by an anthropologist. Oh, really? And he did yeah. a story on this this Paddington Terrace. Um, these people had this old house, and they want to know the history of the house. And he discovered there was a there was a Jewish couple, a childless Jewish couple, who at the when the mid you know the submarines came into Sydney Harbour, and everybody freaked out. You know, they did this. This is a great, actually, really good precursor to this because everybody freaked out and went, "That's it." we're all going to become, you know, a satellite of Japan and they bailed out of the property market and flogged all these properties. And this, this couple bought something like 90, a lot anyway, of terraces in Paddington for bargain basement prices. And they still had all these properties 50, 60 years later. Right. They all had them all rented out. And they were ma- maintaining them all themselves, you know, very, well, lived very frugally yeah. themselves. And the reason that Paddington is so well preserved in terms of all these rows of terraces, basically because this couple owns so many of them because they had cash at the time when everybody else was panicking bailing out of the market well that's amazing isn't it a great story i <laughs> just remember story. as you said I that yeah try, i should try and uh, google that i should try mm-hmm. and uh, look that show up see if it's stored somewhere yeah so shane you just mentioned there the key data points you're watching you know italy um you know maybe a vaccine or some type of medical sort of uh, solution you know is there any other things that you're thinking that the media is not really watching, but you're kind of in the background sort of uh, digging a bit deeper on to kind of see when things will kind of recover or showing signs of probably further distress. Uh, you're right. I mean, just to run through a list of things, obviously um, number of new cases, coronavirus I think is a key to watch here. In the SARS episode, uh, share markets bottomed out and then eventually economies in Asia mm. um, hit their low. Once the number of new cases had peaked, so you can still have a rise in cases, but if you if you get a, a peak in the number of new cases, that can be a very positive sign. Yeah. Um, if we get antivirals come along or accelerated vaccine, that would be extremely positive. Yeah. Um, Italy, I think, is the one to watch right now, and then following that, Spain. Uh, obviously, the US need to keep an eye on there, but they're a bit bit behind on this one mm. um, because it affects confidence globally so much, and also Australia. We still we done a little bit better in Australia lately. Hopefully that continues. Uh, then I'd be watching, um, obviously, economic uh, indicators. Uh, you look at uh, China, for example, some of the best ones to watch were traffic congestion or people riding subways. You know, once you yeah. start to see more traffic out there as the shutdowns start to eventually relax a little bit, then that will show that people are getting back out there. So we'll get to a point where economic activity will have deteriorated a lot, but it will then start to grow again. Uh, and that's that inflection point, I think, is a key thing to watch here. Um, also watching the unemployment rate very closely. Uh, it has such a psychological impact. I, I think if we can keep that below 10%, it's going to rise. Mm-hmm. But if we can keep that below 10%, that would be a very positive sign for Australia. Uh, I like to watch um, what we call credit spreads. That's the gap between a, the, the amount of money yeah. a corporate can borrow at versus uh, the government can borrow at. That those mm-hmm. spreads have blown out in recent times. Uh, if we can get that back in, that's a positive sign that the money is still flowing to, to corporates. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously, the stimulus measures—you know—they've already done a lot there. But if they keep iterating to improve things. Uh, make it easier. Obviously, they've made it easier for people with mortgages, businesses, yes. yep. wage payments. Um, they may, I think, well, there is also now going to be an issue for landlords with tenants. Um, obviously, it made sense to make life easier for those tenants who are having trouble um, in terms of paying their rents. But also, we need to consider whether we can do more for landlords. Um, that's a potential issue. Uh, <laughs> and I suspect... Mm-hmm. 
um, at some point we might also need to provide a bit more help to the household sector in Australia to sort of you know, get them get them spending again when the time comes. But by and large, <laughs> yeah, by and large, I'd say that the things the government has, has done have been pretty good. So if you run through all of those signs, you, you can say there are some penalty positive signs in terms of Italy um, and also down the bottom there in terms of the, uh, the, the, the government action yeah. to help limit the fallout from all of this. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Shane, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Um, but I'll, I'll give you my own story. Yeah. Uh, I, I happened to buy into the Sydney property market in the house I'm sitting in now in 1995. And it was a time when interest rates had come down through the early 90s recession, and they'd gone back up again. They were back at, up above 10%. Mm. And it was the middle of winter. The house had passed in an auction, uh, and it was, I think, one of the best purchases I'd ever made. And so it just, just highlights to me the importance of, you know, when no one else is buying. Cause I was just driving along with my mother. My father just passed away at the time. Driving along with my mother, saw this open house, went in there. No one else was there. There was the agent there, and he told me how much they wanted it for. And I thought, gee, it's almost affordable for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just think, geez, yeah, how lucky I was with that. But it just highlights the importance of buying when no one else is around. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the crowd is, is gone, when you've got plenty of time to think about it and do the checks and all those sorts of things and line up your finance, um, which I, I think is incredibly important. I have heard of stories of people who've gotten you know, over their head with too much debt. Um, and then have to offload often at, at unreasonable prices. But the trick for me is, yeah, make sure you don't take on too much debt and wherever possible um, look to try and buy in when, when others aren't. It's a good point, actually, because I think you're right. Once when the market's hot or frantic and FOMO's in the market and you've got lots of people who have missed out on lots of properties uh, and are frustrated and desperate, um, you kind of have to conform with that. And I think you become desperate as well because – everyone else is acting like that. And then what you then do is you end up buying the wrong property because you rush it or you don't do your checks and you're building a pest and um, you potentially overpay because you're so fearful of losing it again. Um, so this is going to be one of the positives over this period is you might have a lot less people competing with you, which allows you to make a much better, say more informed decision. Would you agree, Veronica? Absolutely. And we've seen that too. I mean, we price, uh, you know, we go through a very rigorous pricing process for every property that we evaluate. And, and when the market's rising, we know that if there's competition allowed to generate, then it's going to push it to the top of that range, maybe above. Whereas now, because there isn't the competition there, and it's not to say that people aren't making offers, they are. We've seen quite a lot of transactions, but there's the competition has taken out in terms of there's a whole layer of buyers that aren't getting access to the property or have decided to wait. And so therefore there's not that frenzy. You've got more time and you know, it's more likely you've been to buy that property at the bottom end of that range or in some cases underneath, depending on how panicked the owner is um, or the, or the agent for that matter. So Absolutely. I've seen that. And, and I also, also think that's a great point there, Shane, about, you know, taking the time to do your due diligence, you know, that when we see FOMO at, at, um, at its heights, oh, having said that, actually, I've got a bit of a dumbo. I'll talk about yesterday. So a client of mine had their property on the market for sale whilst uh, simultaneously looking to buy and they actually needed to sell first. And so I've been coaching them through this the whole time going, you know, yes, we can find property and we can be ready to buy that property, but you can't go for it until you've actually sold. And so they had an offer on the property, their home um, yesterday morning with a cooling off period and the property they wanted to go for was going to auction in less than five days. And so that's the sticking point. You can't go for it. Um, they have another buyer go through in the afternoon. The agent takes this buyer through. He's a bit of a, a bit of a dick swinger, you know, somebody who can buy and so he's going to show how good he is. And so he walks through this property and because he's told another buyer's got an offer on it, he's like, well, I, I can buy it, I can buy it unconditional because I'm, I'm pretty good. And goes into the agent's office straight after the inspection, rings his solicitor, shoots the contract over, gets it reviewed, comes back with a 66W, which means you can buy it unconditionally and buys it all within the space of a couple of hours of first seeing it. 
no building of pest inspection, no real thought about what it's wow. worth. You know, it, it's phenomenal. And you just think, so even in this market, you've got people who are so cavalier that they don't do their due diligence. So there's a good Dumbo for you. Anyway, delighted clients. We actually secured a great property at a really reasonable price. At the end of the day, they did two transactions in one day. Um, you know, and I think their buyer was an idiot, but that's who cares. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shane, for your um, time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, following on from that really great, very interesting uh, interview with Shane, I would say we just have to remember to keep calm and carry on. I mean, one thing that's really clear from all of this is that things do ultimately get back to normal. And if you are in your own home and you're happy in your own home and you can afford your own home, stay in your own home. If you need to upgrade, well, look at your life plans and actually what you need and stay the course. I mean, this is not about knee jerking and the world is not going to fall off the end of a cliff. You know, make sure obviously it's easier if you're in a good job and you've got good buffers in place and all the rest of it. But I just think really that bootcamp today is really keep calm and carry on. Please join us for our next episode. When you guessed it, we're talking about coronavirus yet again, but this time our slightly different bent. We're really looking at some history lessons around the bounce back from economic shocks in the past to see what we can learn about what to expect in, say, six months' time. We also do talk about the impact currently on the Brisbane property market and uh, we discuss such things as population growth and how that may be impacted now that our borders have been closed and all of these things are very very important topics of conversation when it comes to property and no other than Pete Wargen has rejoined us to discuss these in our next episode please join us don't forget we're on all the social channels we're on Facebook we're on LinkedIn we're on Twitter or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au the links are all there for you please connect and send us a message we'd love to to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a Dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.